Amen. Well, uh, last semester, what we talked about, we began with homartiology. Someone tell me what homartiology is. It's the study of sin. That's absolutely correct. And then we started on soteriology, which is what? study of uh, salvation, and uh, so last, last semester we really kind of uh, dove into soteriology, the, the doctrine of salvation, the study of salvation, uh, really by looking at um, the accomplishment of, uh, of redemption, and then this semester what we're doing is we're continuing on in soteriology, and we're moving from uh, the accomplishment of redemption into the application of redemption, how the things that Christ has uh, accomplished are actually applied. To, uh, to our account. And so last week we talked about uh, irresistible grace. It's also known as the effectual call of God uh, where he draws us into relationship with him. And so today what we want to talk about is kind of an outworking of that or a result of that or an effect of that and that is uh, regeneration. So that's what we're talking about today, regeneration. There's only one text in, uh, in the entire New Testament, in, at least in the ESV, uh, which is the translation that uh, we prefer here at Parkway. There's only one text that uses the specific word regeneration. It's in your notes there, Titus 3.5, uh, which says that he, that's God, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so even though it only, uh, it only occurs once, at least in the ESV, uh, in uh, the entire New Testament, this is a concept that kind of dominates uh, Paul's uh, thought on, uh, on salvation. It dominates kind of the biblical view of how salvation occurs. And so don't let the fact that the word itself uh, only uh, occurs once kind of uh, betray the idea that this is unimportant. It's kind of like the word Trinity doesn't occur any place, and yet we would say it's one of the most, if not the most, foundational doctrine of uh, Scripture. And so likewise, regeneration, it only occurs once as a word, but the concept kind of drips throughout the New Testament. John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, that's the idea of regeneration, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1, 22 through 23, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure, pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So again, the word itself only occurs once, but you see this concept throughout Scripture, and one of the most common ways uh, that it is referred to is by this language of being born again, which if you grew up in uh, an evangelical context, you're probably really familiar with this uh, phrase, being born again. So what I want to do is I want to kind of step back for a second, and I want to talk about something, kind of trying to put together, we're talking about a whole bunch of pieces of the puzzle. Last week we talked about, uh, in our sermon, we talked about God's foreknowledge, we talked about election, we've talked talked about uh, God's irresistible grace or effectual calling. Now we're talking about regeneration. As we go on, we're going to talk about justification and all of these sorts of things. So what I want to do is I want to kind of step back for a second and kind of talk about something that's called the ordo salutis. That is the order of salvation. And uh, so to help us kind of know where do each of these uh, parts kind of fit together. And, uh, and so you should have something in your notes there. And, uh, and so what, uh, what I want to talk about is kind of this order of salvation. Now, one of the things that you should note is not all of these are in chronological order. A lot of them are in actually th uh, logical order or theological order. There's a difference between something being chronologically ordered and something that is uh, logically ordered. And so uh, chronologically, uh, something has to happen before something else. Logically simply says that there's a cause and effect, uh, effect sort of uh, relationship. And so we'll begin with these sort of events that happen in eternity past. You might call this kind of redemption designed. This is when God designs uh, the, uh, the redemption that he is going to carry out in time. And so a couple of the, the events that happen there are foreknowledge, which we talked about last week, which doesn't simply mean that God knows the future. It means that God purposes and plans and loves people from before the foundation of uh, the world. And, uh, and so go back and listen to the audio, either from the 
the sermon or from last week's theological equipping uh, to talk a little bit more about foreknowledge. And so that's something that occurs in eternity past as part of God's design of redemption. And then out of that, we have election or predestination. Uh, Predestination, we've talked about before, has kind of two sides of the same coin. You have election, which is predestination to life, and you have reprobation, which is predestination uh, to condemnation. Uh, That also occurs before the foundation of the world. And again, there's not a chronological order between foreknowledge and predestination or between foreknowledge and election. It's not like God foreknows and then for a period of time, uh, you're foreknown but not elected. No, God, there is no time in eternity past, uh, but there is this sort of uh, logical order. There's this logical sequence, though, between foreknowledge and election. We saw it last week in our text in Romans 8. Those whom he foreknew, he also elected. And so foreknowledge is kind of the foundation of election, even though there's not a chronological order. The moment you're foreknown, you're elected. Does that make sense? So there's not a chronological order, but there is an order. There's a logical or theological order between the two. So after this, after this stage, which is uh, God's design of redemption, God's purpose or plan of redemption, you would have all the events that actually transpire in God uh, providing uh, redemption. And, uh, and so accomplishing redemption, we talked about that last semester with uh, all of Christ's life and death and resurrection and all of these sorts of things. But then moving on from that into our actual uh, sort of the, the application of that to us, you have a number of different things that occur uh, as part of what we would call conversion. And, uh, and so this is sort of the uh, application of redemption. And so under conversion, you would have God's effectual call, which we talked about last week, and that kind of is the foundation. God's effectual call kind of creates everything else in this scale, which is uh, regeneration and, uh, and then faith and repentance and then justification leading to sanctification, leading to glorification. And, uh, and so again, there's not a necessary chronological order between God's effectual call and your regeneration. Those things occur simultaneously. God calls you, you're regenerated, and that moment that you're regenerated, instantly, kind of like a, a, a match is struck and there's light and heat, the moment you're regenerated, there's faith and repentance, uh, and, uh, and then the moment that you exercise faith and repentance, there's justification, uh, but there is sort of a logical order there, and then flowing out of that, there's sanctification, and then eventually, there will be glorification, which we talked about also in our sermon, which is... Uh, a reference primarily uh, to uh, to resurrection, and uh, so that's the uh, ordo salutis that should help us as we kind of move over the next few weeks to uh, talk about some of these other aspects of conversion to kind of know where it fits, where all these things kind of fit together uh, in terms of a, a, an order. And so back to regeneration uh, in uh, in particular, I want to answer five questions today. Five questions that we want to answer. The first one: What is it? What is regeneration? The second, why do we need it? The third, how do we get it? The fourth, what are its effects or results? And the fifth, why do we need to know this? Why is this not just some sort of academic, abstract, ivory tower uh, sort of doctrine? So what is it? Why do we need it? How do we get it? What are its effects? And why do we need to know this? That's what we're going to hopefully try to accomplish today. So we'll begin with uh, what is it? What is regeneration? A couple of definitions for you here that you should have in your notes. According to Wayne Grudem, uh, regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us, sometimes called being born again. We saw that language there in John 3 and 1 Peter 1, uh, and so that's Grudem's definition. John Murray has uh, defined it as this, that God affects a change which is radical and all-pervasive, a change which cannot be explained in terms of any combination, permutation, or accumulation of human resources, a change which is nothing less than a new creation by him who calls the things that be not as though they were who spoke and it was done who commanded and it stood fast this in a word is regeneration so those are some definitions of regeneration I want to talk a little bit about some characteristics so you have a definition what are some of the characteristics some of the unique uh, sort of uh, criteria uh, or qualifications of what regeneration is and uh, so we'll have a few of these that we want to talk through 
Uh, the first one being that it's something that is done to us, not something that we ourselves do. Notice in, uh, in John 3, you have it in your notes, John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or John 3, 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Does anybody remember from uh, middle school English or uh, high school English or at some point in your life, you learned the difference between an active and a passive verb? Raise your hand if you remember at some point learning that. I'm not asking if you still remember what the difference is, but at some point you probably know there is a difference between an active and a a passive verb. And so the difference is in an active verb, then the subject is doing the action of the verb. So if I am the subject of a sentence and uh, the sentence is I punched Zach, then uh, punched is an active verb because I am the one that is doing it. Whereas in a a passive sentence, a passive verb, uh, the subject is receiving the action of the verb. So uh, if the sentence was, Zach was punched by Jeff. Zach is the, uh, the subject there, but he's receiving the, uh, the action. And so in, this, uh, in these passages, John 3, 3 and John 3, 7, and all the other passages that you might read about regeneration... The verbs there for born again are passive, which means that we, the subject, we receive the action of the verb. We, the subject, are born again, passive. We didn't do the action. We are the objects, not the subjects of the verb. I did not cause my natural birth. You did not cause your natural birth. You didn't decide to be conceived in your mother's womb. I didn't decide to be conceived in my mother's womb. I had nothing to do with it. In the same way, you did not cause your spiritual rebirth. You have absolutely nothing to do with it. You were caused to be born again by another. That's the passive aspect of it. You were caused to be born again by another. By whom? Well, what's interesting is this word again, if you, if you note there in John 3 where it says you must be born again, uh, uh, John uses a really interesting word in the Greek that kind of is ambiguous in meaning. It can mean again, it also can mean from above. And I think he's intending to be kind of purposefully ambiguous. I think it has a, a dual meaning there. You are born again, but you're also born from above. This, uh, this uh, translation of from above, we even see in uh, the context in John 3.31. I think you have that in your notes. He who comes, this is the same word that's translated as again earlier in the chapter. He who comes from above is above all. He who, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. And so uh, that kind of gives us a clue by whom we are born again. We are born again from above. It's totally a work of God. It's totally a work of God. We play a part, as we looked at that ordo salutis, as we looked at the order of salvation, we play a part in our faith. We play a part in our repentance. We play a part in sanctification. Although, as we've talked about before, even the part that we play is still by grace. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Underneath all of your faith and underneath all of your repentance and underneath all of your sanctification, all of those things, ultimately God is uh, at work. God is the decisive actor uh, underneath all of those things. Yet still, we do play a part. There's something that we do in exercising faith. There's something that we do in repentance. There's something that we do in, uh, in sanctification, but we play no part whatsoever in regeneration. We can't touch that at all. It's entirely of God. Look at John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, that includes, uh, includes you, nor of the will of man, there's your will, but of God. You're born solely by God. This is also the promise of the new covenant that we've talked about before from Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. 
and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice how uh, Yahweh, notice how God is emphasizing his role in this. He does this. We don't put the spirit within ourselves. He puts the spirit within us. He removes the heart of stone. Uh, he causes us to walk in his statutes. God is the one who, uh, who does it. So you might think in, in sort of a generalized terms, you might think of the law as this sort of idea. If you're obedient, then God will bless you. Then God will save you. Whereas the gospel is this reality that because God has blessed you, because God has saved you, therefore you will be obedient. There is this uh, reversal there. So that's the first aspect or characteristic of regeneration. It's something that's done to us, not something that we ourselves do. We play no part whatsoever in our regeneration. The second thing, that it's the creation of life, not just cleansing from sin. A lot of times we think that uh, the problem of the human heart is that it's dirty, and that is absolutely a problem of the human heart. That's not the only problem or even the deepest problem of the human heart. The problem of the human heart is not just that it's dirty, it's that it's actually dead. And so we need something more than just cleansing. Cleansing does occur. There is an aspect of cleansing that occurs in regeneration, but more than cleansing, it's actually the creation of life. God speaks life into existence. He doesn't merely take a sponge and wash us clean. He actually takes paddles and brings us back to life. That's the uh, idea here. So new life is what the new birth is all about. It doesn't uh, just involve cleansing, but also the creation of life. Imagine taking a corpse and you simply wash that corpse. Yeah, you might have gotten rid of some of the external bacteria and all that kind of stuff, but it doesn't do anything for the fundamental problem of that corpse, which is that it lacks life. And that's what happens with us, that we are actually lacking in life. We are spiritually dead. You are dead in your uh, trespasses and transgressions, as uh, Ephesians and Colossians uh, will say. So that's our problem. And in John 3, 5, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We talked about this phrase a little bit last week. What does it mean to be born of water and uh, the spirit? So again, we talked about it last week, so you can go back and supplement if you weren't here, but I wanna kind of go over it again because this is super important for us to recognize, yet it's a pretty nuanced um, uh, way of looking at the text. And so some think that what this is referring to is a kind of a chronological order. To be born of the Spirit and to be born of, uh, of water is sort of a chronological thing. You're born of the water and then you're born of the Spirit. And so some people uh, have viewed born of water to be referring to natural birth. Kind of the water is the amniotic fluid uh, and, uh, and then the, to be born of the Spirit is your uh, rebirth. But I think the point of the text is whatever it means to be born of the water and the Spirit, I think those things are to be viewed together. I don't think he's intending to say you must be born of the water and then you must be born of the spirit. I think his point is that you must be born of the water and the spirit as being something uh, that he is referring to uh, as one particular thing. Those form, we talked about this in the Q&A last week, what's called a, uh, called a hendiadis. In Greek, that means one through two. Uh, one through two, that's what the word hendiadis means. One through two. In other words, you're expressing one idea, one concept, one thing, through two different words or phrases. These two separate terms form one sort of conceptual unity, like good and plenty. Or if you're reading Macbeth and you come across the phrase sound and fury, what does he mean by that? He means by that a furious sound. He's not intending us to note sound and fury and kind of divorce those two. He intends them to be read together. Or if someone were to say, this coffee is nice and hot. We don't mean that the coffee is hot and the coffee is also nice. It's not mean. No, we're using those two things uh, together. And so that is uh, what's going on here. To be born of the water and the spirit is a hendiadis. It's two words referring to one particular uh, uh, reality. A second reason to think this is not a chronological thing, we're born of the water equals uh, being uh, your natural birth and then born of the spirit is your rebirth. Uh, 
is because uh, whatever it means to be born of the water and the spirit in verse five seems to parallel what we read in verse three, which says just to be born again. So to be born of the water and the spirit together seems to be parallel to the idea of being born again. So it would be strange to say born of the water is your natural birth and being born of the spirit is your rebirth because it seems like in the, uh, the language of John three, those things are referring to the same thing. And, uh, and I think the, probably the, the biggest argument against that view is that no sort of early commentaries share that meaning. In fact, no ancient Greek text uh, or Hebrew text or anything else refer to natural birth as being, quote unquote, from, uh, from water. The ancient Jews and Greeks simply wouldn't have thought of your natural birth as being from water. That's kind of a modern idea that we've kind of read back into the text. So if that is not what it means, uh, what does it mean? Well, some people have also taken this to refer to baptism. We talked about this a little bit last week, but that would make, the problem with that is if born of water in the spirit means that you must be baptized, if that's what it means, uh, the problem with that is that it would make baptism necessary for salvation, which would really sort of dilute, no pun intended, our view of justification by faith. It would mean that people like the repentant thief on the cross couldn't be saved, which means that Jesus would be a liar whenever he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. It means that the Old Testament saints wouldn't be saved because they weren't uh, baptiz- baptized. It would also be anachronistic. You know what that word means? It means when you take something that is a future reality and you kind of read it back uh, on the past. R- remember, as John 3 is being spoken, Christian baptism doesn't exist. Christian baptism doesn't exist until after Christ is resurrected. That's part of the Great Commission. And so there is no Christian baptism when Jesus is speaking these words. And so it would be really strange for him to speak about something something that doesn't even exist. You must be baptized whenever baptism doesn't even exist. It's the first time that's ever happened. The doorbells rang. Uh, so Christian baptism isn't even prescribed at that point. So it would be anachronistic to think that he's referring to uh, baptism. And, uh, and then lastly, there's nothing in the context that suggests that John is suddenly referencing baptism. And I think it's really important for us to recognize that Jesus, as he's giving these instructions, he expects his audience, which is Nicodemus, he expects Nicodemus to understand what he's talking about. He explicitly says in, uh, in John 3, 9 through 10, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is saying, but Jesus answers him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Which would make no sense if he's talking about baptism because baptism hadn't been implemented at that point. Why would a teacher of Israel understand baptism if baptism hasn't been uh, implemented or hasn't been prescribed? If we look through the Old Testament and we don't see baptism uh, uh, reference, so in other words, there's something about, something that we see in the Old Testament which must give a clue what Jesus means about being born of the water and the Spirit. And last week we saw that that is in the promise of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So you see the imagery there of regeneration. So I think that's what he's talking about. When he says you must be born of the water and the spirit, he doesn't intend for us to separate those and say what is born of the water and what is born of the spirit. Those are intended to be read together. So what does it mean to be born of the water and the spirit? It means to be a recipient of this new covenant promise of uh, regeneration. By the way, you're reading Ezekiel 36. What's the next chapter? Those of us who can count. Ezekiel 37, that was a very easy sort of give, give up question. Ezekiel 37, anyone know what occurs in Ezekiel 37? It's the prophecy of the, someone said it, I thought. The dry bones, the prophecy of the dry bones. So this sort of allusion to the idea of res- resurrection. And so you see even this sort of symbolism uh, whereas regeneration is kind of the beginning of what's going to be completed in, uh, in resurrection. 
Regeneration is the beginning of life, whereas resurrection is the consummation, the completion uh, of that. There's a really interesting thing that, that occurs between both uh, sin and salvation. So in sin, think back to, uh, think back to the garden and, uh, and think in, uh, in Genesis 3 and then the subsequent curse of death. God says, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die, right? Man and woman eat of the fruit, and do they die in that moment? Yes and no, right? In what sense do they die? Spiritually, immediately they die. All right, do they physically die in that moment? No, do they eventually die in that moment? Yes, so you see this uh, sort of already but not yet. You're already dead spiritually, not yet dead uh, physically. Well, the same thing happens in redemption. The same thing happens sort of whereas the fall is kind of this idea of the reign and the rule of death, and it's already but not yet. You're already spiritually dead. You're not yet physically dead. So redemption is the reign and rule of life, and we see an already but not yet there as as well. So for us in this room, we've been born again. The already is regeneration. You are already a recipient of life. You are not yet a recipient of the fullness of that. So there's this already, not yet sort of version. So regeneration is the already. What's the not yet of life? Valley of dry bones, ultimate consummation, resurrection. There you go. All right. So in other words, regeneration is kind of the fulfillment of this new covenant promise of a new heart and new life, and it's a down payment for the eventual fulfillment of the uh, promise of a new body. So that's the second thing. It's the creation of life, not just uh, cleansing from sin. Third, it's distinct from, yet tethered to, irresistible grace. We might say that regeneration is the first effect of God's effectual call. God calls, and we're born again. So we talked a little bit about effectual call last week. Some of you that are in your 20s or younger might not remember this, but used to, you would use these things to make phone calls. You wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't play Angry Birds or even send text messages or anything uh, like that on it. You would simply speak. Some of us hate speaking on the phone. That's the only thing a phone originally exists for. When someone made a call, it was in order to speak. Well, that's kind of the imagery of God's effectual calling. He doesn't send a text message. He speaks. And what happens when God speaks? Throughout Scripture, when God speaks, something happens. God's speech is effective. It causes something. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What's that text alluding to? Genesis. Where does God say, let light shine out of darkness? Genesis 1, in the creation, right? Right? Uh, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, there is a parallel between what God does in creation. He speaks to a disordered world and creates order. He speaks to a world where there's no life and he creates life. That's what he has done to your heart. Romans 4, 17, as it's written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exists. So regeneration is God speaking into existence that which doesn't exist. Those who think, we talked about this a little bit last week, those who think that God's calling is based on his foreknowledge of our future choices miss that completely. They think that God looks out over creation, sees this sort of spark of light, this spark of life, and he simply applies some of those bellows to it, breathes uh, life into that spark, and what they've missed is biblically there is no light. Just like there is no light whatsoever before God creates light. There's no life whatsoever apart from the triune life of God himself. There is no life until God speaks it into existence. If God looks into the future to see what sparks he can apply his bellows to, he sees no sparks whatsoever because there's just darkness and death and decay and depravity and all of that sort of thing. You have a dark, depraved, dead heart that dislikes, distrusts God, and into that void he speaks and he creates light and Life. So he speaks, that's the effectual call that we talked about last week, and the result is you're born again. That's regeneration this week. So you see that they're distinct, and that yet they are related. They're inseparable, in fact. There is no regeneration without the effectual call. Next, it's an instantaneous event with ongoing results. 
instantaneous event with ongoing results. It only happens once. Certain things that we'll talk about are progressive, we're progressively sanctified, but uh, regeneration is this sort of crisis experience, this event that happens once. It happens instantly and immediately and uniquely, and yet we might not be able to pinpoint that exact moment. And I don't think we have to. Some teach, you might have even grown up in a context where you heard that unless you know the exact moment that you're born again, that you shouldn't have confidence. The problem with that is the Bible never says that. For a lot of us, we don't have that experience. That's not my experience. I can't nail it down to a particular day or hour or minute. I can't even nail it down to the particular week or month. I can nail it down to about a three-month period where I know my life was radically changed. That's as close as I I can get to it. Now, if you're looking at your life and you're saying, I can nail it down to about a 60-year period, that's probably a little bit too uh, generous there. But you don't have to know the exact moment. Yet, theologically, you know there is a moment. You don't need to know when that moment is, but you need to know there was a moment. There was a moment in which you were dead and you were brought back to life. The Bible never says, though, that you actually have to know that exact moment or anything. In fact, I think that becomes uh, a, uh, an unnecessary burden on people uh, when it comes to their assurance. And so some people had this dramatic overnight change. Some people had a really dramatic change over the, the span of a couple of months. That was my uh, particular testimony. My, my conversion was powerful and dramatic, but it wasn't overnight. It was over the, the span of a couple of uh, months. Some people don't really seem to have that much of a dr- dramatic change because they grew up in the church and they never really had to go through some of the things that uh, the rest of went through, but what's important to recognize is whatever your experience, however you look back upon that with hindsight, to know there was a moment in which you were born again, and there was a dramatic uh, change that occurred in you, even if you don't necessarily see the drama behind it. Does that make sense? So, biblically, I think it seems of very little importance to know exactly when you were regenerated, but it's very important to know that you are regenerate. The question is not, did you believe? The question is, do you believe? It's a present sort of reality. I don't care if you can know when you were generated. I care that you know that you are uh, regenerate. And so the effects of generation, regeneration will be evident over time, but it only happens once. You can't be born again again. And, uh, and so although some of us have an experience where they rededicated our life or something like that to know, there is only one decisive moment when you're actually born again. That said, there are ongoing results. The rest of your life, there is this outworking you have this imagery in First Peter chapter 1 of being born again through a uh, living and abiding seed. And as a seed that's planted will bear fruit for the rest of its life, that's the same with uh, regeneration. We see that, by the way, in First John 5, 1, which we'll talk about here in a second. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So we'll talk about that here in a second. That's that ongoing sort of results, though. But let's talk about the next point. It's distinct from, yet tethered inseparably to faith. It's not faith. Regeneration is not the same as faith. We talked about there's a difference in the ordo salutis. It's what gives us the ability to believe. So think back to that order of salvation. The difference between a Calvinist and an Arminian view on regeneration is the order between regeneration and belief. Regeneration and faith. And uh, and so does regeneration, does being born again, precede faith and repentance, or does it come after? Is it the cause or is it the effect? Which is first? And uh, and so you can make a uh, a logical case from dozens of texts, but we have an explicit answer in 1 John that we'll get to here in a second. But you might have grown up hearing, uh, like I did, I grew up in a context where this is what I heard. If you believe, you will be born again. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that. All right, so that's, that's the context. A lot of us probably grew up hearing that. If you believe, you will be born again. Biblically, though, that is a reversal of the order. 
The, the biblical order is, if you're born again, then you will believe. I found this statement by a large uh, evangelical denomination I won't uh, mention, but they say, we believe that the true church is composed of all such persons who through saving faith in Jesus Christ have been regenerated. In their view, which one is primary? Which one is the cost? Believing, right? Through saving faith are regenerated. I would say through regeneration come to uh, saving faith. So that, again, that's a reversal. We know that uh, in a, from a number of texts, but I think the clearest, if you want to just look at one sort of proof text, 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, just looking at that uh, part of the, uh, the verse there. So there's two verbs in that verse, believes and has been born. English is not great at pulling out this sort of uh, nuance there, but uh, there is this relationship that exists between those two verbs, believes and has been born. And the Greek is actually really clear in bringing out that, uh, that nuance, that one is in the present tense and one is what's called the perfect tense. The perfect tense is an interesting tense because it suggests a completed action with ongoing results in the present. And so what you're actually getting from this is that perfect tense has been born of God is the cause of the present tense believes. It's a completed action. You've been born again with ongoing present results. What are those ongoing present results? That you believe. Being born of God is the foundation, the cause of believing in Christ. So believing is the effect or the result of being born of God. I included a quote in your notes by uh, John Stott to that effect. The combination of present tense, believes, and perfect tense, has been born, is important. It shows clearly that believing is the consequence, not the cause, of the new birth. Our present continuing activity of believing is the result and therefore the evidence of our past experience of new birth by which we became and remain God's children. So that just seems like, for some of us, that might seem like grammatical pickiness. Why does it matter which one is first or not? Why can't we just love Jesus and love others and that's all that uh, matters, but there's a number of places where cause and effect are really important. Consider uh, this case. You're, consider you're a police officer, or maybe you're a juror. Is there a difference between me saying, I shot Carl because he assaulted me, or Carl assaulted me because I shot him? Are those, is that an important nuance? Is that just something that is, eh, it doesn't really matter. Why can't we just agree to, you know, let you guys just work it out amongst yourselves? No, in one, I have justification for shooting Carl because he assaulted me. In the other one, he has justification for assaulting me. Uh, or consider you're a pastor and someone comes to you and said, I started dating my current wife because my ex-wife divorced me versus my ex-wife divorced me because I started dating my current wife, right? Those are different, right? Cause and effect are very important. Likewise, it's very crucial for us to recognize that being born again is the cause and not the effect of our believing because otherwise, if we reverse it, somehow we get something to boast in. We believe and therefore God gave us this new birth. We boast therefore in our faith and the purpose of faith is to remove all grounds of, uh, of boasting. So God speaks, a new heart is given and that new heart begins to beat and instantly pumps out both faith and love. So that is what regeneration is. Very quickly we'll move through the next. Why is regeneration necessary? It's necessary, that's the first thing you need to recognize, it is necessary, John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. John 3, 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, so we see it is necessary. And yet, why is it necessary? We've talked about this before. John 3, 15 through 18. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved, this world that he, uh, loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And on and on uh, we could go. All that's necessary is that we would believe, that we would have faith. That's all that's necessary for us. And yet, we get to John 3, 19 through 20. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are 
uh, were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So all that's necessary that you do is believe, and yet this is what's preventing you from believing. This is a mountain in the road preventing you from believing. This is a, an insurmountable obstacle that you hate the light and will not come to the light. And so you can only understand why regeneration is necessary if you have a firm foundation uh, for understanding our sin nature. If you have a firm understanding of what we have called total depravity. We don't have time to go into all of the scriptural evidence on this. We spent weeks on this in theological equipping and in our sermons, uh, in in particular in Romans 3, and we still didn't exhaust the subject, so we're not gonna do it uh, this morning, but I just wanna say if there's any doubt in your mind whatsoever about the doctrine of total depravity, come and chat with us. Let us recommend resources. Let us help shepherd you through this. You will not understand justification. You will not understand faith. You will not understand regeneration. You will not understand any of these things and why they're necessary if you don't really believe that you are fundamentally, totally corrupt and depraved and dead in your sin. So we would love to shepherd you uh, through that. So just a quick summary of what we talked about before. You have some passages uh, there in your scripture that I won't read for the sake of time, but uh, just a summary of what uh, the Bible says about our sinful condition, that we have darkened minds, we have darkened and deceitful hearts, we have, we're blind and deaf to spiritual reality, we love sin and hate God, we're enslaved to sin, we're hostile toward God, we are dead. All that's necessary is that we trust Christ. He cries out, come to me, but we can't see him or hear him because we're blind and deaf. Even if we could see him, the Bible says that our minds are hostile to God. Our hearts find him, uh, our hearts are hostile and darkened. Even if we could see him and hear him rightly and understood with our minds, We don't want to come, we love the darkness, we love a rebellion, and then lastly, we're dead. We talked about this last week. If you yell at a dead man, yell all you want, yell loudly, it doesn't affect anything. If you preach to a dead man, he won't rise. The same sort of idea. Preaching to a dead person and yelling at a dead person have the exact same result apart from the sovereign work of God. So we're happy in our smug rebellion, unwilling and unable to repent. Therefore, something must be done to our nature. You can tell a man to fly all you want, but he can't do it. He must become a bird or a bat or something like that. You can't reason with him into the gift of flight. Likewise, you can't just simply tell a hater of God to love God. You can't simply tell a dead person to become a live person. They don't have the power uh, within themselves. They cannot. Who they are must change. That's why regeneration is necessary because our very nature is corrupt and, uh, and falling. Unless who you are changes, then what you do will not change. Birds fly, snakes bite, dogs bark, uh, cats suck the life out of children or something like that. And sinners sin, that's what sinners do. And nothing that we say or do will change that. Only what God does in regeneration. That's why regeneration is necessary because without it, you will not and you cannot believe and thus you will not and cannot be saved. So that's the second question. Why is it necessary? Next question, how does regeneration happen? How do we go from those who run from God to those who run to God? How do we go from resisting and rebelling to returning and resting from hate uh, to love? We see a little hint there in John 3, 7 through 8. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's a little word word play that's going on here that we don't pick up in the English, but in the Greek, the word spirit and the word wind are the exact same. It's the word pneuma. It's where you get the word pneumonia, which is a, uh, an infection within your lungs. Uh, it's also where you get the word pneumatic, like a pneumatic drill, a drill that runs on uh, air. And, uh, and so spirit and wind is a little bit of a Greek word play. Now, a lot has changed since John 3 uh, was written when it comes to meteorology, right? We have uh, 
10,000 plus weather observation sites around the world. We have supercomputers that can crank out complications of trillions of uh, calculations a second. Yet there are still days when you will wake up, you will check the weather, and it will say 100% chance of rain, and it doesn't rain, right? Well, if we can't uh, in any way nail down those sorts of things, what chance do we have of nailing down the Spirit of God? That's the sort of idea there. If you can't predict, if you can't control, if you can't direct or determine the wind, how much less can you predict or control or determine the work of the Spirit? The Spirit enlightens whomever he wants. He awakens whomever he wants. He does whatever he wants. Likewise, he regenerates whatever, whomever he wants. And uh, so another reason for believing that it's God's will and not man's will that is ultimately determinative. James 1.18 will say that of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So it's the spirit of God who transforms us. How does regeneration happen? It's by the spirit of God. Now, how does the spirit do so? Because the spirit uses some means to accomplish uh, what he does. And so the previous verse gave us a hint where it said of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. We read this verse uh, earlier, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mer- great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that's sort of the power of the resurrection. Uh, I'm sorry, the power of regeneration is in the resurrection. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead raises us from our sin. 1 Peter 1, 23, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So what are the two things that we're born again through, according to 1 Peter? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's the power. In verse 23, the message is the proclamation of the word of the gospel. So you have kind of putting it all together, you have the spirit, that's the person, uses the message of Christ's death, uh, life, life, death, and uh, resurrection, uh, that's the uh, proclamation, and then uses the power of the resurrection, that's the power to transform us. So the person's the Holy Spirit, the proclamation's the gospel, and the power is the resurrection. And uh, so that's how does regeneration uh, happen, because God speaks to us, in the effectual calling, and he speaks light into darkness. He speaks life into death, and he does so through the proclamation of the, uh, the word. So that's how does regeneration happen. Next, what are the effects of regeneration? We're gonna work really quickly through this point in the next so we can get to Q&A. Effects of regeneration. This is not an exhaustive list. It might be exhausting. We've been going for quite a while, but it's not a comprehensive uh, list. These are just some of the things that you see as sort of the results, the fruit of regeneration. Again, that imagery of regeneration is the seed that's been implanted in you. Some of the, the fruit that will be harvested. First, that you treasure and trust Christ. In fact, you trust him because you treasure him, that we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, our affections have changed, our desires have been transformed. We see the gospel not only as saving us from sin, but also saving us to God, that he becomes our delight. We've talked about this before. Faith and love, they're like heat and light. You strike a match, and instantly there's both faith, uh, instantly there's both light and heat. Likewise, you're born again, and instantly there's faith and love. That's one of the effects of regeneration. Another one, we begin to love what we once hated and hate what we once loved. You love reading the Bible, whereas before you hated reading the Bible. You love going to church, whereas before you hated going to church. You love worship, whereas before you hated worship. You love prayer, whereas before you hated prayer. Now, I'm not saying those things are perfect. I'm not saying any of us in this room perfectly love prayer or reading the Bible or worship or whatever it might be, but there's some sort of spark there that's been created uh, in you. Uh, In addition to that, you hate sin. There's this hatred now of sin that has been birthed in you. Again, not perfectly, uh, but it's there. Another one, we begin to experience and express the fruit of the Spirit. Because we're born of the Spirit, the Spirit indwells us, and thus we are progressively transformed into the likeness of the Son with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, all those kinds of things. We're willing and able to turn from sin and turn to God. 
and then we're adopted, justified, sanctified. In other words, all the different results uh, of the order of salvation, all the different things that we're gonna talk about over the next few weeks as we get into faith and repentance and justification and sanctification and all of these sorts of things, all of these things are flowing out of, all of these things are fruit, if you will, off the tree that has grown uh, because of the seed of regeneration. Last thing, just to mention why this doctrine is essential to our joy and maturity. Why can't we just love God and love people without all of this sort of theology stuff? Why does it matter if regeneration is the cause or the effect? As we say all the time, your theology is the ceiling for your doxology. What you believe about God will affect how you view him and thus how you relate to him, how you worship him. You can only worship God to a degree uh, that is uh, sort of commensurate with your understanding uh, of him. And so the way to transform the heart, according to scripture, is to renew the mind. There's some of us who are very, very intent on wanting to transform our heart, and I'm not saying that you should do that or that you shouldn't do that. I'm saying the way that you do that is by transforming, renewing your mind. So just two reasons why this doctrine is profoundly practical. First, that it affects our hope on a personal level. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Notice last week we talked about the golden chain of salvation that God foreknows and he elects or predestines and then those whom he calls he justifies and glorifies. There's no mention, which is really interesting, in Romans 8, 28 through 30, there's no mention of your faith or your repentance. Not because those things aren't important, those actually are important, but because those aren't the ground of your hope. The ground of your hope is not in what you do, the ground of your hope is what God has done because those things aren't ultimate. Your faith and repentance aren't ultimately decisive. Those are responses, those are reactions. God's work is ultimate. Regeneration proves that. So if you think that God's love is dependent upon you, then there's always going to be ground for discouragement and shame. On days that you're doing worse, you will think that God loves you less. On days that you're doing better, you'll think that God loves you more. Yet God's love is not dynamic, it's static. It doesn't change. It doesn't ebb and flow like ours. Also, not only personally, but also missionally, does your hope of evangelism and discipleship and prayer and all those kinds of things, does it ultimately reside in your persuasiveness or the power of the Spirit? Those are fundamentally different. The willingness of your family and friends, is that your ultimate hope? You have a hope that your, your spouse or your son or your daughter will come to faith. Is your ultimate hope going to be placed in them? In their will, or is it gonna be in God's will? Only one of those is actually secure and certain. And then lastly, it helps us to understand the mission of discipleship. That we're not merely after men's minds and actions, but their hearts as well. That disciples are not merely those who profess fact. Those are those who have been born again and love God and they trust him and thus they obey him. It does not take a regenerate heart to hate the idea of hell. It does take a regenerate heart to love God and that's what we are after. So, Zach, will you come up? We'll do some Q&A. I went over about four minutes, so I owe you four minutes.